0: I was listening to somebody, and I can't tell you who it was this week, but uh, he, he said something that I thought was very profound. And Well, it's not that profound, but I, it was a good way of looking at it for me. Uh, he was talking about the um, purpose-driven life, the all of those kind of things, and that we're always looking. We, we have so many Christians that are looking for their purpose in life. You know, what, what's God want me to do, and this and that. And he said it's just kind of, a wrong way of thinking because it isn't about us. He said, you know, if you go to the military and you sign up for the Marines or whatever and you say to your sergeant, whatever, I don't know what they're called, drill sergeant, whatever, and you say, well, you know, he goes, why are you here? And you say, well, I'm trying to find my purpose in life. After your ears are done ringing, okay, uh, and you stop crying, you're going to realize you have no purpose. The army is your purpose, period. It's the army's purpose. And that's the way it is with Christianity, guys. We're not here for you. We're here for him. He's already given us his marching orders. All we need to do is be faithful to that. Surrender everything. We die to ourselves. When you go to the army, you're dead. You give up all your rights. You give up all your freedoms. You sign it all away because you now belong Uncle Sam well we give it all and we now belong to Yeshua Jesus that's how it is and so it shouldn't be about trying to figure out what my purpose is my purpose is his period and I just I liked how he put that because we are so and myself included so self-centered selfish, narcissistic about life. you know I think a job you know are we to take the the good that God gives us and not accept the bad? I was uh, talking with somebody this week doing a little counsel and and that was the thing is he just doesn't see God working in his life why well because when all the problems that we have in life it doesn't seem like he's there It's like oh he's there. They, but, and, and those problems probably are trying to teach us something, and he loves us, but he is not far off. He is there. It's that simple. But anyway, um, so like I said, Hebrews 10 is where we're going to uh, be today. And um, if you want to hear other things, um, you can go to patreon.com. Again, this is more for people who are listening than you here, but uh, go to their forward slash creation instruction. Um, last time, uh, we, we've already covered the idea that the, you know, we are the temple and that, yes, there will be a third temple that will be built. I do believe that, but I don't believe that's God's plan. God knows that's going to happen. God's going to use that, but we're his temple. And that's the reason he hasn't allowed it to be built for all these years. And now we were kind of talking last week then, and we were getting into a verse that in chapter 9, that some people use to say that, you know, we can do basically whatever we want, eat whatever we want. There are no rules. Because it's for us again. Not God. it's, It's what we want, what we desire. And I showed you that he wasn't talking about food. He was talking about sacrifices of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Now... Because man has put in these chapter breaks, we're picking up on that same thing, and we're going to see here in chapter 10 more proof that he's talking about the Day of Atonement there in the end of chapter 9. It says, For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never, with these same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect for then would they not have ceased to be offered for the worshipers once purified would have no more consciousness of sins but in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year that whole that one little phrase every year it may not mean much to us because we don't understand that but to a jew they knew exactly what was being talked about the sacrifices being talked about are the ones on Yom Kippur, because that was a yearly sacrifice. Every year, the blood of rams and goats were taken in, and we're going to talk more about that as we go. But don't kid yourself, they they wouldn't have missed this, like we can very easily do. But this is a very radical thing for him to be saying, that these priests for the last centuries, as we've kind of touched on already, have been doing this year after year, and now the author here is coming and saying it wasn't good enough. It didn't clean their conscience. I mean, if it had, they could have done one and it would have been over, but they have to keep doing this over and over as a reminder of sin. So that whole aspect of being a reminder of sin is going to be important here um and basically verse 2 there is proof or to validate the point he's making in verse 1 it can never with these same sacrifices offer continually year by year make you perfect it can't cleanse you and then in the blue there it shows you that there's a juxtaposition here you can't have a clear conscience by going year after year making sacrifices. But there is going to be something that he's going to be bringing out that will clear your conscience. And I think we know what that answer is, obviously, but we'll get to that. Um, I want to show you here a little bit in the book of Numbers, kind of talking about these sacrifices. We often think of them as a way of getting rid of sin but we forget the fact that it was also a reminder of sin. Let me show you here in Numbers 5.15. Then the man shall bring his wife to the priest. He shall bring the offering required for her one-tenth of an F of barley meal. He shall pour no oil on it and put no frankincense on it, because it's a grain offering of jealousy. An offering for remembering, for bringing iniquity to remembrance. Now, this was if you thought your wife had been unfaithful and all of this, you were to bring this, this offering and, and, and it was to remind them of your sin. So every time a sacrifice was done, what they were supposed to be doing is being reminded of their sin. Likewise, when we think about the cross today, it is part of that supposed to be reminding us of what we have been delivered from that we don't just focus on oh i'm now i'm holy i go live my life the way i am but we we need to look deep within and realize the ugliness of our sin and that we didn't deserve that and i think that's a part that's missing in church today oftentimes is we have the oh yay but we forget the fall down on our face we forget the repentance we forget the brokenness, a contrite spirit. And that's what we need to remember. And so that's part of what, because we're going to connect the sacrifice of Yeshua to this Yom Kippur year after year sacrifice. And he's saying one of them could not cleanse, give you a clear conscience, but the other is going to give you a clear conscience. And it's such a paradox because you can take that truth way too far one way or way too far the other, make it cheap grace or make it legalism. But the bottom line is the truth is in the middle there that both are necessary. And we can have a clear conscience that I said this years ago after I mentioned that book, What God Wishes Christians Knew About Christianity by Bill Gillum before. And one of the things that was in there that I took, and I don't remember if he talked about it specifically there or how it all happened, but bottom line is, he says, I I no longer pray the Lord's Prayer the way that I used to. And I remember this as a kid. I'd go to church and I'd pray the Lord's Prayer. Right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And I remember thinking that, oh man, God, I hope you do better than that. Forgive me my trespasses as you forgive those, you know, or as I forgive those who trespass against me. Because there have been times I've been pretty bitter with people. And I can hold a grudge and I remember those sins. And if God's only going to do that good, I'm still in trouble. One of the things that I believe, and again, I've got to be an enigma to some people, because I'm called a legalist but by some, and then by others, this, you know, I'm so far on the grace period, I don't think they can figure me out. But that's the where truth, I believe, lies. There, I love the law of God, but I also love the grace of God. You see, they go hand in hand. And when Christ came, you have to understand that he was coming under the old covenant. He was under the old covenant in Matthew. He hadn't died on the cross yet, which is why when he goes in Matthew, and and Matthew is much deeper than this, but in Matthew chapter 5, we see the Beatitudes, and he says things like this. He said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. What if you're not a peacemaker, but you're a Christian and you go to church, but you're not a peacemaker? Uh Uh-oh. You see, it's kind of a works-based type of thing, to some extent there's more to it than that but do you see what I'm saying is that you go to Colossians after he dies on the cross and he says this we are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus see the difference before the cross better be a peacemaker after the cross you better have faith it's there's a difference there and you go and you read through the Beatitudes I'm telling you something in the Beatitudes I love how the church has made this blessed are those blessed, blessed, blessed. That's what the Beatitudes are. It's this one great big gospel sermon. Go read it. It's, a, it's the, the hands, uh, what's that, sinners in the hands of an angry God. That's what Matthew 5 is. It is dooming you to hell. If your righteousness does not surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you cannot inherit the kingdom of God, he said. How are you doing on that one? Well then you can't enter the kingdom of heaven that's what he says in the beatitudes i think everybody listening on in matthew 5 to that gospel sermon went home with their heads tucked down and and were doomed like what are we gonna do but then when yeshua dies the answer was there and they were able to be cleansed of a guilty conscience And see, that's now when the law comes into play. Now that I have been cleansed from a guilty conscience, now, understanding my marching orders, I am going to want to be in that army. That's the difference. Remember, I've been saying all this time, God has taken the law and he has now put it into my heart. Not as a means of, oh, I better do this so that I can be saved but as a means of, because I'm saved, I want to do this. That's the difference. But I have a clean conscience now before God. And don't get me wrong, sometimes my flesh doesn't want my spirit to know that truth. I'll blow up, I'll lose my temper, I'll say words I shouldn't say, and I feel terrible, feel awful. And I I go and I ask for forgiveness, and And then I go, no, I don't need to ask for forgiveness. I'm forgiven. And I say, God, thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for for my forgiveness. I don't need to go and ask, Lord, please forgive me and hope that he's going to answer yes. Can you see the difference? I'm claiming the truth of God's word. And I can do that because of what he has done. And so when I say the Lord's Prayer to this day now, and I get to that point, I don't don't ask Him for forgiveness. I thank Him for it. So just it might seem like a small thing, but I think it's a pretty big thing how we live our lives. And we need to have, that's what having assurance is. Not just hoping that I've been good enough, to get that forgiveness. That's not the gospel. It's knowing he's been good enough to give it to you already. Now, again, I'm speaking to believers when I say that. To those who are living willfully in sin, that message is not for you. Okay? Then you need another message. You still need Matthew 5, and you are doomed unless your righteousness surpasses that of the, the scribes and the Pharisees. Anyway, verse 4 continues and it says, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. So, keep in mind... Exactly. Yeah, because right now there are sacrifices being placed. They may have just come there from this morning, you know, and having made an offering, a sacrifice, hoping that that was going to take away their sins... And now this guy's saying, "What well, you just did can't take away your sins," but he's going to give you an answer. But but Yeshua can the ultimate sacrifice. He can. And so people who want to live under the law as a means of righteousness, this is the state they're in right there. Now I live loving the law of God, but there is a difference between being under it. And loving the law can be looked like this Daniel kind of talked about it this way Daniel Joseph and I love this I think it's a perfect analogy of what the law is the law is an EMT like my son okay his job is not to save people's life his job is to keep them alive until they can get to the doctor who's supposed to save their life. It's only to keep them alive. Okay. Now, this is going to kind of unfold a little bit more, but the bottom line is this, is once you get to the hospital, now there's a surgeon who's been trained in different things that now that guy's going to save your life. But my son doesn't have all of the skills that a surgeon has and whatnot, all the knowledge. Okay, so let me just show you, uh, unwrap this just a little bit more. Galatians 3.19, what purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgression. Romans says the same thing. The law was added because of transgressions. So the law was added because of transgression. Now think of that analogy again. The law, the EMT, was needed because of sin. You're bleeding out. Because of sin, you are dying. You're bleeding out. And there needed to be an emergency. So God says, here, I need to give you this law because it's going to keep you alive until I can get you to the physician. Yeshua. And that's where we are then saved. But the law just kept us alive year after year after year. Christ heals. I just love that analogy because it just, no, Daniel Joseph, I said, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, if 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 I'm ever preaching anything that good, it's not from me, okay? (laughs) Yeah, well, I said it before, so I, yeah, so bottom line, though, is it it puts that perspective. The law was added because of transgression. I don't know if I really, truly grasp that. And it's like, oh, yeah, that, that's exactly what it was. It's to keep you alive. But I don't want to just be kept alive on life support. I want to be healed. And it goes on, and here's the answer. It was to keep you alive. It was added because of transgression till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. There it is. The seed, the hint that hey, this is going to be Yeshua. He's going to unwrap this. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith, not by works, And so many people who think because I love the law that I'm trying to be justified by works. Not at all. It's because I'm justified by faith that now I'm even capable of doing works. That I have a desire to do that. Because, hey, if a surgeon saves your life, I think you're going to be a little thankful. We'll go on to verse 5. Therefore, when he came into the world... He said, Sacrifice an offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. Another mind blowing thing for a Jew, because think about this. He's talking about a body that was to be sacrificed human sacrifice. That's an abomination. Now, if you're going to say this, you better be able to back this up with Scripture. I was talking with somebody else this week in regards to one of the things we'll talk about as far as clean and unclean. And I said, I can't give you a verse that's just going to say, you know, point blank, here it is, and okay, now I'm convinced. I can give you three or four verses that you're going to look that are going to be on your side that are going to tell me, you know, tell you that you can eat anything you want. It will be out of context of the whole the topic within that chapter. But here's the other problem. Those four verses, I can give you 30 other verses that now you have a contradiction between those 30 and these four. So what do you do with that? And I came to realize that this is what it is. When I, I think what What Corner Fringe has helped me to understand is this. I don't just take a verse and put it in context with the two verses above it and below it. I don't even take it in context with the whole chapter. I can't even take it into context with the whole book. I have to take it into context with the whole Bible, all 66 books. And that's the difference. And when you start thinking that way, but you see, as Christians, we don't. When we see a New Testament verse, it is only in the confines of the New Testament only, not in the confines of the whole 66. It has to fit all of it together because Yeshua cannot come and say something in the New that contradicts the Old. He cannot unless, and this is the only unless, unless, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, unless he predicted that he would do it. That he told you ahead of time that this would be done. For example, the old covenant was going to become a new covenant. He could not do that unless he had told you, which he did in Jeremiah 31 and many other places, right? Where he says, the day is coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of uh, Judah and with the house of Israel. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Okay? This is going to be a new covenant. And he says that he's going to take and write the, the commandments on our hearts. So he told us that was coming. Likewise here, to say that, hey, a, a, a body human sacrifice is acceptable No, the Torah says that's an abomination. So there's got to be something in the Old that's going to explain what could happen in the New to make it okay. Does that make sense? Psalm 40, verse 6 says, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. It's like, what? The whole Jewish religious system seems to be on that. But it says, my ears you have opened. That's not really what it says the septuagint which is the greek translation of the new testament now by the way sometimes when people say the septuagint they think i'm you know quoting something that's not biblical or or i'm just kind of you know cherry picking what i want out no do you know that in the new testament one out of every two verses that are quoted from the old testament which as you've seen as we're going through hebrews there's hundreds and hundreds of verses that are quoted probably in this book alone you don't even realize he's quoting the old testament but you go back oh yeah this is what jeremiah said this is what ezekiel said whatever one out of every two is quoted from the septuagint so this is something that jesus quotes many times this is the bible it's only the greek translation of the hebrew bible that's all the septuagint is And you go to the Septuagint and you see this. It says, sacrifice and offering you would not have, but a body you have prepared for me. Now, believe me, because most people in that day was using the Septuagint, when the author of Hebrews was writing this, they knew what he was saying, a body you have prepared for me. Because he's quoting the Septuagint here. And this is the other thing that just blows my mind is how can we say that Yeshua is getting rid of the Old Testament when the entire New Testament is quoting it to prove its point? That's what I mean by taking the 66 books together. You can't have the entire New Testament constantly quoting the Torah and say, well, that was old, that was you know before Christ. Well, then how come is Christ doing it, using it, and after Christ, all of his apostles, all of his disciples, quoting it. As if it is gospel truth. You just can't. It's one book. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. That word desire is a very important word. It's haphets. Now, in the New Testament here in the Greek, it is the exact same word here when it says, "You did not hafets sacrifice and offering." What well, what did he desire? You go to Isaiah fifty-three, a messianic chapter. It says, "Yet it hafets the Lord; it pleased him. It desire. It was his desire to bruise him, Yeshua. He has put him to grief." when you make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So what did God desire? He desired to give his son. He desired to prepare a body. That's what Hebrews 5 is saying, but a body you have prepared for me. Hosea 6, 6. For I desire, that same word, hafetz, mercy and not sacrifice and knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Well, what is Jesus? What is Yeshua? He is mercy. He is God's mercy to us. That is the whole picture of the sacrifice of the mercy seat was where the blood was poured. Yeshua is our mercy. And so we can see this this hint that what God did desire was He was going to prepare a body. It desired, for God so loved the world because He had such a love for you that it pleased Him to send His one and only Son to die on the cross for you. So, in verse 6, in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will. Oh God. He's quoting Psalm 40 here. And remember, Jesus told the disciples, he said, or, uh, really the, the Pharisees, he said, You think that by reading the scriptures that you obtain eternal life, but you don't realize that these are the scriptures that testify about me. That's what this is saying. Behold, I have come in the volume of the book, it is written of me. The whole point of Torah and all the Old Testament is Yeshua. I've said it before, but on the road to Emmaus, they didn't have the New Testament. All they had was the Old. So do you really mean that when Yeshua came, he was trying to say, okay, well, I'm going to die on the cross now. You guys, go. you figure out what you're supposed to obey and what you're not supposed to obey in the Old Testament. Really? No. And But this is what some people are saying. Well, God got rid of this. And so when the Bible says law in the New Testament, he's talking about the Ten Commandments. That's not what it says. It says Torah. That's the first five books. So law isn't just the Ten Commandments. Yes, there are times it'll say laws, commands, and decrees. But even in the New Testament... So, all of this is, is about Yeshua. And the author of Hebrews is trying to point this out and saying, listen, guys, you know these verses. Who's this mean? You, you guys know it's God. The, the Jews know that it's talking about God. So who is this? Well, it's the Messiah. Well, who do you think Yeshua is? He's the Messiah. That's what he's trying to get across to these people. Verse 8 previously saying sacrifice and offering burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire nor had pleasure in them okay so he's again quoting the old testament for them saying see guys this is what i'm saying think about this which are offered according to the law then he said behold i have come to do your will O god continuing to quote the old testament He takes away the first, and then he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So, kind of an interesting word here is that he takes away the first. In the Greek there, that word is kills. He kills the first, that he may establish the second few weeks ago, we were talking about the covenant. where It's a new covenant, not a renewed, a new covenant. He killed the old. Now, that doesn't mean that he still doesn't use the same law, but he killed the old. What did he kill of it? The condemnation. You better be glad that he killed that part of it so that he could make it new, but he didn't give us new rules. He just explained what that was for to begin with, and we a few weeks ago. Well, maybe we didn't. I think I'm thinking my Galatians one that I was teaching. Galatians is great about that teaching. That when Christ says, you know, to uh, basically love your neighbor as yourself, love God, he's, that's fulfilling the law. Well, that's what the law in the Old Testament was all about: loving your neighbor. And we can give you verses that show that. But it wasn't about salvation. It never could be. It was never the physician. Not even in the old. Um, Verse 10 says it's finished. Basically. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. He now, he's been leading them up to this. He says, you know, A body you have prepared. What is He telling Let me show you. It's Yeshua. You guys all know He died on a cross. You all know that He resurrected. I'm using the Old Testament to show you what you guys know. That's what's going on. It is finished. And so it's explaining why that temple hasn't been built, this third temple. Because the whole book of Hebrews is trying to tell you there isn't a need for it. And it's so crazy because if you think about it today, do you know the Jews today that that don't believe in Yeshua as the Messiah, they are so uneasy. And yet the Messianic ones are cool as a cucumber. Why? Because we know this truth. It's finished. They're just longing and waiting for that temple so that we can just do those sacrifices once again. We'd give anything to have that built. We've got it. And we kind of are bored with it. We meaning the church in general. How sad. But we need. We should be at peace. That's the beauty of this truth to me. Verse 11, and every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, Yeshua, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool for by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So every high priest stands day after day just keeping you alive. He's that EMT, but now comes Christ, the physician. He does it once for all. You're healed, no more need for the EMT. And he has perfected forever. So what I want to do is just kind of show you a little bit deeper about this by taking you this whole idea that a sacrifice of a, a human sacrifice was an abomination. Was there anything else hinting to this outside of Jesus saying, A body I have prepared for me? Well, yeah. How about Abraham and Isaac? Genesis 22. You guys know the story. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Look, the fire in the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Now, very important here the word lamb. Where's the lamb? Note the difference as we continue what God's going to provide. Because you're going to see a prophetic picture here, I think, that is very obvious. It goes on. So the two of them, he leaves his servant behind, so Abraham and Isaac. They go up. Abraham lifted his eyes, and he looked up there, and behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram, and he offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. So in the dot, dot, dot there, you remember the story. Isaac is laid down as a sacrifice. Abraham has the knife up. He's ready to. His arm is upraised. And the angel comes and stops him. And you're like, whew. And then they look up and they see a ram in the thicket. So God did provide the sacrifice, but was it a lamb? No, it was a ram. And this is a prophetic picture because what is offered in the sacrifices in the temple time and time and time again? The blood of goats and rams and bulls. There are lambs, but most of the time you see bo- bulls, goats, rams. But God was going to provide a lamb. But this first time around, he's only providing a ram, an EMT. That's good. But later he's going to bring the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Never. And here's the other thing. It's Passover where we have the lamb. He's been talking about this day of atonement, this body you have prepared. So all of this, the Jews know very well that Abraham was told to go sacrifice his son. But instead, in the meantime, God provides a ram until the lamb can come. So it was a temporary, the ram was a temporary sacrifice. Verse 14, Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. And by the way, if you've ever studied this, the mountain that this is happening on is probably the very place that Yeshua was crucified. Not just the mountain, but probably the very place. Um, Archaeology has some interesting things that would point to that. I I can't guarantee it, but the way God works, I kind of believe it's probably the case. So, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven. And what's interesting here is notice, you would think, wow, God provided a ram. The ram's going to be the focus. The ram is not the focus. What's the focus? Abraham and Isaac. And it says, and said, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you... Abraham, have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Again, prophetic of God not withholding his son, his only son. Well, that in that word only, there are people who kind of say, you know, yeah, what about Ishmael? Well, there's two things. Number one, Ishmael has already been sent away because he is not supposed to be under the covenant but i still think that's his son because later we see it you know he's called his son but the other thing is that word there it means to be the only unique son the and he was the only one of the promise he was the promised son he was the one that was supposed to be there this other son was the one that abraham went on his own and sarah too and you know slept with hagar to to have but the word there doesn't necessarily have to mean like the only boy you've ever born, but the only unique one that you have. It's the only legitimate yeah, it is the only legitimate. But the word is, is like, the word like unique in, in Hebrew. I want to show you a prayer which is also very fitting for the time. This is a prayer that the Jews say on Rosh Hashanah, Rosh, uh, Yom Teruah, the Feast of Trumpets, of which is starting next week. And it fits in with what we're talking about here as well. But bottom line, when they celebrate the Feast of Trumpets, they focus on Abraham and Isaac. And here's their prayer. Remember in our favor, O Lord our God, the oath which Thou hast sworn to our father Abraham on Mount Moriah, Consider the binding of his son Isaac upon the altar when he suppressed his love in order to do thy will with a whole heart. So, it just amazes me that they're not seeing Yeshua in this. But remember the binding of Isaac so that your wrath is not on us. That's ultimately what they're saying. It goes on and it says, Thus may thy love suppress thy wrath. Remember the binding of Isaac. Remember your love so that your love will suppress thy wrath. And this is all about the binding of Isaac. Man, when I read this, I can't not think of Yeshua. So... What a clear prophetic picture that is. And it says, Against us and through thy great goodness may the heat of thine anger be turned away from thy people, thy city, and thy heritage. Remember today in mercy, in favor of his seed, the binding of Isaac. Remember the mercy of Yeshua. And so, again, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It's that binding of Isaac. And they're seeing that the binding of Isaac was a picture of God's love and mercy to to get rid of his wrath. So a remarkable prayer to me. Verse 15, But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and in their minds I will write them. He's not saying he's getting rid of the law. He's quoting from the law, and now even saying, I'm going to just put it in your heart. Put it in a new location, just like Jeremiah 31 also said. Where he said he would remember your sins no more. Uh, Hebrews 10, 17, he adds, Their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. So he's kind of come full circle where these priests have to year after year after year as a reminder of their sin. He's now saying because of this sacrifice, this body that God has prepared, there is no more a remembrance of sin. So the circle is complete. Verse 18, now where there is a remission of these, these sins, there's no longer an offering for sin. Okay, if your sins are not remembered anymore, you don't need to make sacrifices anymore. Again, for anybody in that period, whoa, wait a minute, what are they doing then? And the same would be true for works righteousness, those who who are trying to be legalistic in the true sense of of the word, of trying to obey to be that godly person, you know, to be saved. So one thing that needs to be talked about, it is so clear that Yeshua is saying that there is no more sacrifice. So what do you do with Zechariah? Chapter 14 is talking about what seems to be more the millennial reign. It's clearly a future time, a period that we have not yet come upon. And it says this, Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judea or Judah shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. Everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them. In that day there shall no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. So you can go read the whole context of Zechariah 14 and you'll see this is clearly future. So what's going on here? You even can read that there's going to be, you know, those that don't come up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, they don't get rain. So for all the Christians today who think that the Feast of Tabernacles is just a Jewish thing and the church doesn't need to do that anymore, you might want to go read Zechariah 14 because you're going to do it. And we're going to have it here, so you have an opportunity. Yeah, yeah, and we're going to have one here a couple of weeks. So bottom line, what do you do with this if there are no more sacrifices? Well, it's very simple. Because we didn't grow up in a Jewish home. We we didn't understand. We've kind of really grown up without even studying the Old Testament, most people. You don't understand that not all sacrifices and offerings were blood. It wasn't all about that. Do you remember Paul? Paul makes sacrifices in Acts chapter 21. Another thing, Paul in Acts 21, I don't have it up here, but you maybe write that down in your notes. Go read Acts 21. In Acts 21, Paul comes back from being out on this missionary journey. He reaches Jerusalem and there are some people there and they say, hey, your reputation precedes you. And there are people here who are saying that you are teaching the Gentiles to go against the the laws of God and the custom, the laws of Moses and, and the customs. He says laws and customs, both. Now, to show them that there is no truth in this matter, we want you to make this sacrifice. Now, if Yeshua taught Paul that there was no more need for any sacrifice and any of the customs of Moses or the law, would he do that sacrifice? Absolutely not. Does he do the sacrifice? Yes, he does. Why? Just as it says, to show them that there is no truth in this matter. Go read it. It's Acts 21. Anyway, some people use this then in Acts 21 also as a means that Paul couldn't be saying that sacrifices are over because Paul does a does sacrifice. Well, bottom line is there are what are called todah offerings, thank offerings. You know, when you go to Israel today, you might have heard me, me saying like todah, thank you. And so there's a todah offering, a thank offering. There are grain offerings. And these grain offerings are to be cooked. And I think here in Zechariah as well, it kind of talks about, how does it word? Um, I think it says cooked in Zechariah. And people think, well, you're obviously cook meat. No, well, you can, the word can mean bake, broil, boil. And so the, some of these grain offerings, that's what they would do. So, I believe that there will be sacrifices in Zechariah 14, but they will not be animal sacrifices. They will be thank offerings. They are going to be grain offerings, but not animal ones. Now, I'm not the only one saying this. Jews say this. Some of the Jews, there's a very famous rabbi, Rabbi Cook, highly respected. And he believes that there will not be any animal uh, sacrifices in the Messianic era. Why? Well, let me show you what he says. That the time human conduct, at that time human conduct will have advanced to such a high standard that there will be no longer a need for animal sacrifice to atone for sins. Only non-animal sacrifices grains, for example, to express gratitude for God, would remain. This is a Jew saying this. One that doesn't even believe in Yeshua, but he's saying, we're going to advance to a point of, of, of you know perfection. There will be no need for sin offerings. Well, he's right. It's just because of Yeshua. So this is what Zechariah 14 is talking about. It goes on and he says, only non-animal sacrifices, grains, for example, to express the gratitude of gratitude to God would remain. There is a Midrash, again a rabbinic teaching, uh, commentary on Scripture, on Jewish values and tradition that states, In the Messianic era, all offerings will cease except the Thanksgiving offering, which will continue forever. This seems consistent with the belief of Rabbi Cook and others based on the prophecy of Isaiah 116 6-9, that people and animals will be vegetarian in that time, and none shall hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. Well, that makes sense with Hebrews, if you ask me. So when you read Zechariah 14, or you go back and read Leviticus and some of those sacrifices, realize not all of them involve blood. Some of them are thank offerings. And they're called sacrifices too. You know, to remain for them today. If they're longing for it that much, that they're singing about it, why not give the Jewish Bible a chance? We talked about this, I think it was last week. Most Jews, they've never read the New Testament, they don't even know. They know they, they've heard about Jesus. But all they know about him is it's evil. And now think about this, guys. This is an important, a huge part of why I think this Jewishness is also important. Why would a Jew listen to you share about Jesus? All you've done is shared with them a Gentile Jesus. One who says, go ahead and go eat pork, when the Torah says, don't do that. One who says, you don't need to keep the Sabbath, when the Torah says, honor the sabbath and he and their people spent 70 years in babylon because the land didn't get its sabbath rest and all we've done is given the end and when we do nothing but celebrate christmas and easter and worship what they see as us worshiping pagan gods because they're pagan festivals and this is the jesus you're saying is our messiah yeah right why would they listen to you there's not a chance they would. That would be like a saintness trying to come and tell you to worship the devil and that that's the real Messiah. It is so far foreign. It, it It's mind-blowing to think that any Jew has ever listened. And so I think that's a very important part of understanding how a Jew looks to you and so when they they have heard about Jesus all they know of him is a Gentile Jesus, not the Jewish Messiah. same thing with our I shared here a week or two ago too with our, our teacher professor from Concordia Seward that uh, she had never read the New Testament and when she did she called her mom she read the whole thing that one night she stayed up all night long because she never knew. And she called up and she said, how come you didn't tell me there was more to the story? So most Jews have not ever read the New Testament. They don't know anything outside of the, the urban legend of this pagan Jesus. Yeah, And in some cases, not even Isaiah 53. Uh, it's not really... Uh, taught in the synagogues and things like that. You read some of those very messianic um, uh, chapters of Scripture, Psalm 22, same kind of things. But they, in some cases, are taught. You go read Psalm 22, they think that's Joseph. And what's happened is there's a system that's set up within Jewish culture that's very much like a Catholic church. It's very difficult to to witness to a Catholic Because it doesn't matter what the Bible says. It really doesn't. What matters is what my priest tells me. And even if I can show them in Scripture something, it doesn't really matter. It matters how my priest says that means, and it matters what my church history says about that verse. Jews, it's the same way. It really doesn't matter even what Torah says. What matters is what my rabbi says Torah means. I agree, but I'm going to give a little clarification because I think it can be misunderstood, and that is this. Christianity is not supposed to meet the Jews in the middle. Christians are supposed to be jumping over to the Jewish covenant. That's the difference. And the church has seen it. It's what Romans says, that we are not to boast over those branches. And that's what Christianity did is we boasted over the Jews and we figured oh, we, it's our covenant now. It's our God, our Jesus. You're welcome to come to our side if you want. But you read the New Testament. Every bit of it says we were supposed to be jumping to their side. It's like when you adopt a child. If I go and adopt a child from China, do I now all of a sudden become Chinese and take on the Chinese culture? No. No. That child now takes upon my culture. We are the ones who have been grafted in, as Romans says, to the Jewish covenant. Well, so much so that they had that argument that
1: said, that they have to become Jewish before they can be believers? Yep.
0: Like, like, this is our, this came from us. They have to become us before they can believe. Romans even says, salvation is of the Jews. Okay. Jesus said, I came only for the lost sheep of Israel. Okay. Now, there's other aspects of this that are very interesting. This could be a whole study in itself, but I'll give you a little teaser. In Genesis 49, I think it's verse 18 possibly, is when we see Ephraim being blessed. And it says, you shall become a multitude of nations. That word nation, in the Hebrew there, is goyim. That is the word for Gentiles. It literally says in Genesis, if I'm right, 49 verse 18, you shall become a multitude of Gentiles. So, you look at your history from the Bible, we see that We have 12 tribes of Israel all united as one under King David, King Saul, King David, and then King Solomon. Solomon dies and his son Rehoboam becomes king. And there is a split and 10 tribes went over here and two tribes remained. The tribe of Benjamin and the tribe of Judah stayed with Rehoboam. The other ten tribes went over here. They became known as Israel. These two became known as Judah. So when you're reading your scriptures and it makes a distinction between Judah and Israel, that's important. Then we see that these ten tribes, they're called the northern tribes of Israel. These are called the southern tribes of Judah. These kings over here, I'm just curious, I shouldn't even do this, but do you remember how many kings? Anybody? <laughs> Something about a Jimmy. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. yeah, it's been a while. Nineteen twenty zero eight a hee Jimmy. Yeah. Uh, hi, Miss JJ. Anyway, they have a little ditty. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would I teach them hand signals that go through the Bible: creation, fall, flood, people scatter four thousand years ago. God calls Abraham. Abraham has Ishmael and Isaac. Isaac has Esau and Jacob. Jacob has Joseph. Joseph goes to Egypt. Israel goes to Egypt. Four hundred years of bondage. God calls Moses. Moses says, "Let my people go." Pharaoh says, "No." So they cross the Red Sea. Go to Mount Sinai. Receive the Ten Commandments. Basically, that's what it does. Well, I know that my wife taught it to some of the kids. And I have it on a DVD called Two Minute Bible. That, But bottom line is this. When you get to the part of Israel, there's north, south. So everything on your right hand is for the northern kingdom. North. Everything here is a south. North, south, Israel. North is called Israel. Judah. South is called Judah. 19, 10. There were 19, or 19 and 20. There were 19 kings for the tribes of Israel. 20 for the tribes of Judah. Zero. Zero of those 19 kings followed God. Eight. Eight of the 20 followed God. And so, Amos, Hosea, Ezekiel. Yeah, they were the prophets. So that... Yeah, they were the prophets that prophesied to Israel and then the prophets that prophesied to Judah. But anyway, the point being is this, is when they were split, that forever changed everything. And so there are those today who will believe that if you are even interested in this Jewish stuff today and have started to follow it, you are of those lost tribes because Jesus said, I've only come for the lost tribes of Israel. Because we have prophecies all over in the Old Testament. If you do a word search for gather, you will see that God, there must be 50 verses in the Old Testament telling you that in the end times He's going to gather those 12 tribes together again. He's going to take the stick of Ephraim and the stick of Judah, and He's going to put those two sticks in His hand and they become one in His hand. Okay, We have all of those kind of things that prophesy that in the end times... God's going to gather the scattered tribes of Israel because what happened to them? Well, these 10, because zero of those 19 kings followed God, he brought the Assyrians in. The Assyrians came and captured them and scattered them throughout the world, assimilated them into their culture, and they lost their identity. These two were taken captive to Babylon for 70 years and allowed to come back. So, when Yeshua comes, most of the Israelites were all from the tribe of Judah and Benjamin. All twelve tribes are going to come back. Now, here's where I disagree with the idea that you have to be from one of those tribes. A couple of reasons. First of all, when the Assyrians came, some of these people did jump ship and they came over to Judah. We see that, it mentions that in Scripture. Which is also why we see Anna, who I think it says was from the tribe of Asher in the New Testament. So not it's not cut and dry. But there's no question that these ten tribes were lost. And God is calling them back. But the second reason why I don't think that you have to be one of those twelve tribes if you are into this kind of thing is because Rahab... She was an outright full Gentile. But what does the scripture say? In Exodus, it says that if any foreigner will come and celebrate the Passover, okay, and basically join you, consider them native-born Israel. So Gentiles, true blue Gentiles, can become Israel. And so this is a long way of getting around, but what I'm saying is, is that we go to them. We're not meeting in the middle. There's been a substantial lack of us going to them. Yeah. Zachariah 8 eight twenty three says, This is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, ten people from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, Let us go with you because we have heard that God is with you. Some of you maybe heard me speak about that at the River Church. And I love that verse. That's one of my favorite ones. And you know, with the seat, seat. But again, that's about end times. In the end times, in the last days, ten Gentiles are going to grab hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, "Take us with you." For we have heard God is with you. Yeah. Well. I think what it's meaning is this, is I do think it's meaning, yes, they're grabbing on to the hem of Yeshua. But what is the hem? The hem is the tzitzit. That's what that is there in that verse. And the tzitzit is that thing, the tassel that they would wear. And the book of Numbers tells us that is the commandments of God to remember the commandments of God. So what that is saying is that in the end times, Gentiles are going to grab on to the commandments of God, which by the way, I believe is Yeshua. He is the Word, the Law. He's all of it. And they're going to say, take us with you. They're going to understand we have been living under cheap grace. We have made our own covenant. We have abandoned the Jewish covenant. We've made our own church, made our own rules, and... We're done. We're jumping ship, and we're going to grab on to Yeshua. That's what I see Zechariah eight twenty three saying. All right. Well, let's uh, close in prayer. We're not going to get to those other verses that I said we possibly would get to, but I kind of thought it was a long shot. But <laughs> what's that? <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, there's so many good things. I mean, as you can, we could spend a week on one of these verses but anyway heavenly father uh, you are so good and your word is just sweeter than honey may we just desire it more than more than whatever candy we desire father that it would just be so such a power to it that we would just want it that we would dream about it lord we've had so many distractions we've the tv and the facebook and the entertainment, all of these things that we just chase after, they leave us empty. Only Your Word can fulfill. Only Your Word can can heal and just change us. So may we just continue to dive in. May You reveal Yourself more and more. May Your Spirit just fill us. May Your Spirit just guide us in every way, shape, and form. And may we just feel the presence of of Your Word, the presence of Your Spirit, and continue to just lead us into the path of truth. We pray this in in the name of Yeshua. Amen.